Hi, this is Gary Meese with episode two of The Case Against. I'm going to continue looking tonight at the West Memphis Three case, in particular media coverage, which is, there's been a lot of it lately with uh, Damien Eccles having a, a, a book out called High Magic. Uh, I guess there's a huge novelty factor here. Here's a convicted child killer who puts who was convicted and uh, is generally associated with uh, having committed uh, a crime that, that he was at least accused of having occult uh, motivations for the crime. And so 25 years later, what does he do? He puts out a book uh, describing all sorts of magical rituals and just and has extensive interviews in the media with all sorts of people about his magical beliefs. Um, it's perfectly consistent with how he's been over the years, but I'm going to, in particular, look at the, the New York Times piece from uh, uh, September 26th. They had a couple of really significant factual errors that were not corrected, and... Uh, and also just a general uh, general error in the overall tone of coverage, et cetera, as far as, as, far as I'm concerned, in my, my opinion. Uh, I will say that, you know, I've seen a number of other uh, interviews just in the last few days, and they all seem to hit the same general themes. Um, if they don't outright call them wrongly, convicted, they wrongfully convicted, they uh, make it sound as if uh, he was uh, railroaded, uh, brought into court under, you know, charged under poor circ uh, false circumstances, false pretenses, etc., etc. None of that's true. But anyway, um, the headline is now, Damien Eccles will teach you the secrets of magic after almost and subhead after almost two decades on death row, this member of the West Memphis Three is touring America teaching the rituals that set him free. Let me say, the rituals did not set him free. Uh, this piece is by Rachel Monroe, who's a freelance, young freelance writer for, out of uh, uh, can't think I the, the name eluded me and I had it earlier today it's 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 a small little hipster town in far west Texas but anyway um, she uh, she's written some um, several other stories uh, in the past uh, involving uh, murder murder cults uh, particularly uh, a story about Manson followers uh, the Manson bloggers, I think is what she, they're called, who have this fanatical interest in all things Manson. And uh, also she did a piece, which is a lot more relevant to this, which is uh, uh, about uh, fan worship on, on the internet of the Columbine killers. You know, how these young girls saw, see D Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris as dreamy, misunderstood, just adorable teenagers that they'd love to, you know, 
love to just hold and comfort and make happy. Anyway, this is the story. Uh, as a teenager in the mid-1990s, Damien Eccles dabbled in Wicca and wrote love spells in his journal. Already, uh, I'll read the rest of the paragraph before I get into this. When three eight-year-old boys, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, she misspelled Christopher Byers' name. It's B-Y-E-R-S, not B-E-Y-E-R-S. Were found dead in the woods in West Memphis, Arkansas. Police immediately focused their investigation on Mr. Eccles and his friends Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miskelly Jr. They were pentagram doodling, metal, metallica listening, nonconformist in their Bible Belt community, and they were charged despite the lack of any physical evidence tying them to the crime scene and a dozen witnesses placing them elsewhere. Uh, Leaving aside the question of whether 1993 and 1994 are the mid-90s, arguably I guess they might be, uh, Damien Eccles was more than a dabbler in Wicca. And, uh, you know, I guess he did write love spells in his journal, but the journal was really a book of shadows, and it was uh, it was him compiling his, his various... He had some dark poetry, and he had some drawings, and this and that, but, you know, it was basically it's... Uh, what a, a young witch does to build up the magical repertoire. The three eight-year-old boys were found dead in the woods in West Memphis, Arkansas. Police. This is the only only explanation is only description of the crime at all, in the whole story. She did at least mention their names, which is more than a lot of these other reporters will even bother doing. Of the three dead boys. But she doesn't describe the circumstances, which were particularly grisly and horrific, with two, two of the boys mutilated, one sexual, uh, Chris Byers sexually mutilated, Stevie Branch, the space cut open, the boys were horribly beaten, they were bound, they were nude, they were dumped in a, a, a ditch in this woods next to a truck stop, and they were there for 18 hours, and were eventually found uh, during the police search. Uh, so she minimizes, basically it's minimization of what the crime is about, because we don't really want to go there. We don't want to actually be reminded in case somebody might have actually have the idea that Eccles is guilty. Let's not be reminded of what he actually did. Uh, so police immediately focused their investigation on Mr. Eccles and his friends Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miskelly Jr., a little bit of truth there in that Eccles was one of the early persons that they looked at. They had various lists of potential uh, suspects that they were checking out, sex offenders, uh, violent criminals, people, suspicious people in the neighborhood, uh, truck drivers. They even were looking at Vietnam veterans. Uh, they got zillions of tips. They checked the checked those out. There were a lot of suspicious people who were at, at the periphery of the case. That some of whom, you know, the tattooed hitchhiker. There's these people are sort of almost fables at this point. Mister Bojangles, uh, the, the the guy who took a uh, a cab and drove paid two hundred dollars for a cab ride to Car Crossville, Tennessee. Uh, all of these very suspicious, weird thing 
happenings going on all around uh, West Memphis, Arkansas on the evening of May 5th, 1993, almost all of which had nothing to do with the crime, almost certainly, but they just, they were odd. And uh, Eccles was on the list. He went to the top of the list pretty quickly because he was reported that uh, by this was on a Wednesday that the murders occurred. By Sunday, they had a report that a family had seen him walking down the service road uh, with muddy clothes on, dirty clothes on the the evening of the uh, the killings. The service road right in front of the where the right by where the woods was, right about right after the killings, about nine thirty at night. Uh, and the killings probably happened between six thirty and eight. Um, and these people knew him and there were more, there were, there were the Hollingsworth family, uh, more than one report from the family. Uh, they talked to Eccles that they talked to Eccles that, that same afternoon that this report came in and he gave some very suspicious answers, uh, to FBI checklist enough that that raised suspicions. He, said he was, you know, how would the killer feel about uh, the, the, the killings? And, he, oh, the killer would be happy. Uh, he would have liked to have heard them screaming. Uh, you know, Eccles was the first to suggest that Satanists were the ones, ones responsible for the killings. So much for satanic panic, but we'll get into that. Uh, Baldwin was... Uh, also being looked at to an extent because, and they did, they did talk to Baldwin briefly on that Sunday. His mother came in and frantically sh shut the police off from ha having any communication with her son whatsoever, which is her right, but it also raised suspicions. Why, if she, he was innocent, why, what's the problem? Uh, as I say, it's his right not to talk to police and it's her right to keep her son from talking to police, but it did raise suspicions. It brought in Eccles the next day, and uh, he gave some troubling answers. Uh, his, his alibi changed quite a bit within 24 hours. Um, you know, the timeline that he gave. And then um, he, they took a, gave him a polygraph test, and he failed the polygraph, and then he shut up, got sick to his stomach, uh, wanted to talk to his mother. Said he'd he'd tell all if he'd tell everything he knew if they were bringing his mother. His mother came and then uh, he basically said, "I'm not going to tell you anything." So that was that, um, and that was the last of the interrogations of da Damien Eccles. But he did himself no favor favors in the talks that he had. He talked exten extensively about his magical beliefs about the efficacy of uh, human sacrifice, particularly young boys, uh, the importance of the number three in terms of occult ritual, all these other things that were highly suspicious and honestly gave answers that were remarkable considering here was a 18-year-old kid living in a uh, mentally disabled who was uh, on social security disability. He's been 
in and out of mental institutions three times for violent acting out and his and concerns about his involvement in occultism and his habit of drinking blood uh, three times within the, that previous year. Uh, he'd been to a psychologist or psychiatrist. Mental, he had a mental health exam the day of the killings in which the, the doctor uh, noted that he had a tendency to do strange and disturbing things. Uh, as for Jesse Miskelly, he wasn't even on the radar at all. He was, he, they had no interest in him until Jan, June 3rd, a month later. Uh, it says they were pentagram doodling, metallica listening, nonconformist in their Bible Belt community. Well, um, Eccles and Baldwin both did listen to Metallica, along with millions of other kids, including many, many other kids and adults in, in that community. Metallica was one of the biggest bands in the world in 1993. Uh, they probably did, uh, they did have uh, pentagrams doodled. On, on various pieces of paper, which again is not unusual that people do all sorts of scribblings on paper. Kids do, particularly in school. Uh, but to describe uh, Baldwin, for instance, as a nonconformist, he was about as generic a, ki uh, a teenage kid as you could find. You know, blue jeans, t-shirt, Long, shaggy type hair. I mean, he of a certain type, he looked like a million other kids. And he, he his, otherwise, he was, un, except for his friendship with Damien Eccles, he was absolutely unremarkable in every respect. Um, there's no in, evidence that Jesse Miskelly doodled pentagrams, listened to Metallica, or was anything like a nonconformist. Though he was, he did have a reputation as being a little thug. Uh, as for the Bible Belt community, it's not a Bible Belt. It is a Bible Belt community. That is true. It is in the Bible Belt. <coughs> uh, the community has been mischaracterized as some sort of uh, hotbed of religious fundamentalism, and it's simply not. Uh, one of the mainstays of the local economy is the uh, the now it's a casino now a casino dog track now back then it was a dog track, but gambling was a big source of revenue back then, and now for the community. Uh, the other big sources of revenue in that that community were um, the truck stops, motels, eateries, and so forth that catered to the. Heavy, heavy traffic that came through there with the I-55 and I-40 literally converge into a single highway briefly through West Memphis. And it's, you know, thousands of cars come through every every day. Quite a few people stop. Quite a few people stop and eat. It's uh, There's in a wide variety of people. It's not as if this is some sort of isolated community off in the hills someplace. Uh, it's hard to imagine... Uh, 
a community of that size that would have much more traffic than what they have what they have and of course they have a large city with you know about a 10 minute ride away in Memphis uh, West Memphis was always regarded as uh, a place where there was some vice going on uh, it was a bit of a getaway one of several places that Memphians went to get sort of get away from the city uh, which at one point was was very puritanical and it's uh, under the leadership of boss Crump was very strict about what they allowed and where they allowed it and West Memphis is one of the places that people could go to drink and gamble and so so forth so there was a long history there dating back literally decades um, but church membership in West Memphis is below the national average uh, there are a lot of fundamentalist churches. There are a lot of fundamentalist Christians. And I would assert that that's true in many, many communities around the country. They're certainly not unusual in that respect. And um, there are corners, probably, I don't recall exactly a corner where you could pull up and there was a church on every corner, but there are lots of churches there. No doubt about it. It's also got a huge black community there and the black church experience is quite different from the white church experience in many many respects uh, and uh, it's not really played not really played up a lot in the in fact it's not played up at all in paradise lost but the fact is is it, it is very much uh, was and still is a, a community that is very much divided black and white uh, Weaver Elementary, where the, the three boys went to school, they were in the second grade at, at the time that of the killings was, it wasn't a segregated school, but it was virtually all white. Uh, as of five years ago, when I was familiar with the school, it was virtually all black, except for some of the administrators and teachers. So that's how the demographics had changed there over the course of 25 years. And that has that's a factor in the the community and how it how it looks at things that really is not explored very well in the in the movies at all. Uh, they were charged despite the lack of any physical evidence tying them to the crime scene. Not true. There was fiber evidence. There were uh, there was some other physical evidence uh, that couldn't. Uh, some DNA evidence that couldn't exclude them, but it, what it but by no means could be tied conclusively to just them. In other words, it was DNA evidence of such a low quality that it fit many, many people. So many that it's almost useless. Uh, but there was some physical evidence, so it's not, they didn't have, uh, this is another thing that's thrown out. There was no lack of any physical evidence. A little physical evidence is not no physical evidence. And a dozen witnesses placing them elsewhere. Without getting into an exhaustive uh, uh, explanation of, of uh, all the failed alibis, uh, basically Baldwin didn't have an alibi. It had no, no credible alibi witnesses. Eccles had a set of alibi witnesses he, claim, he claims as people... He claims these girls he talked to on the tele talked to on the telephone that day as alibi witnesses. Even up to this day, none of those girls said they talked to him between roughly 4:30 in the afternoon and roughly 9:30, 9:20, 9:30 at night. 
which gave him plenty of time to do whatever it was he did and still field their phone calls. In fact, they they gave many many statements over many years, and the indication is is they um, Jennifer Bearden in particular called uh, his home at eight thirty or so, and his grandmother said he wasn't there. Damien's grandmother said he wasn't home, so he wasn't talking to them all evening, as he continually asserts. Uh, the there was a family that he had his fa- his own family members, his father. Couldn't even say he went on this trip over to the, these family friends, the Sanders house. The Sanders were not, the parents were not there. They were in Tunica, hence no alibi from them. There was a young daughter there. She, uh, she did testify that uh, Eccles, his sister Michelle, and his parents came over that evening. However, she tied it to uh, the date to a band concert, and uh, it turns out that the band, that supposedly was like two days later, turns out the band concert was two weeks later. Uh, the girl's sister, who was across the street uh, watching 90210, uh, the prom night on 90210, which is like a big deal with this alibi, uh, she, she tied... Uh, their appearance at the house to a few days before the arrest, which was, and it was almost a month later. And uh, she also did not, she did not see all four people going in. She only saw three, uh, the parents and Damien. Uh, not really good witnesses. Uh, his, his mother was a terrible witness. Uh, I'm not even going to try to get into all that. And his sister, Michelle, was a fairly consistent and limited witness, really the kind of alibi witness you want to have. But it was his younger sister. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of backup there that really had any credibility. Um, As for Jesse Muskelly, he had two. He also had two sets of witnesses that potentially offered him alibi. Would potentially offered him alibis. One group involved uh, a group of young men, boys, who went went on a wrestling trip, a trip to practice wrestling in Dias, Arkansas, which is like forty miles away or so from uh, the trailer park where Jesse lived. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, the guy who was the the stories were not that consistent to begin with. And then the guy who was the ringleader of it, Fred Ravel, gets on the stand and testifies that he signed the slip of paper, a receipt, receipt on making a payment on, on the use of the theater there. And then uh, uh, the receipt was produced, and it turned out it was the week before. There's Jesse Miskelly's signature on there from the week before. Uh, just totally shot down that alibi, which wasn't a great alibi anyway, since he could have got participated in the killing and still have gone on the wrestling trip. The other uh, set of witnesses, and there were quite a few of them, uh, they were all friends of Jesse Miskelly. They all, none of them, very few of them ever talked to the police prior to the, the, the trial. They show up at court. They make various claims about where Miskelly was that evening, uh, a lot of the accounts are contradictory. 
I mean, they had him walking, sitting on a porch with somebody and walking around with somebody else and seeing, talking with somebody else, that sort of thing. The big thing was, is there were three police calls to uh, Island Trailer Park that afternoon between roughly 6.30 and 7. Sheriff uh, Shelby, uh, Crittenden County Sheriff's Deputy, James Dollahide, and, and came to the first one and uh, two Marion police officers also showed up at the second and third, if I'm, I think that's correct. I know they were at least at one of them. And they uh, they testified that Miskelly wasn't at the scene of this police call while his friends were claiming he was actively involved in mediating with the police and so forth. Uh, so they overplayed their hand there, the friends did, and they had no credibility. You either had police officers who were consistent and who knew Miss Kelly and were consistent in what they said versus friends wearing yellow ribbons who proclaimed their love of Miss Kelly, who really had no credibility. Um, go on with the story. During the murder trial, police prosecutors painted Mr. Eccles as the ringleader of a satanic group that had murdered the boys in an occult ritual. Actually, the prosecutors didn't really paint him that way. His own co-defendant, or uh, well, he wasn't in the same trial. Uh, his, one of the other killers painted Mr. Eccles in that light, and Jesse Miskelly in his confessions. Uh, prosecutors were just following up on the, the evidence that they had. Uh, it notes Mr. Eccles didn't do himself any favor. I'm editing this somewhat as I'm going didn't do himself any favors on the stand. When the prosecutor asked if he read books by Aleister Crowley, Eccles said no, then added, I would have read them if I saw them. In 1996, he was found guilty of the boys' murders and sent to death row. Mr. Baldwin and Mr. Miskelly both received five sentences. Uh, he was convicted in 1994, and I did send a letter to the editor uh, to that effect pointing out this particular error, which is, as far as I know, has not been corrected. And I got a form letter back simply thanking me for uh, my input. So that's how committed the New York Times is to the facts. They can't get the spelling of, the, of the, one of the children's names correct. And uh, even when it's pointed out to them that they have a date wrong, they don't bother changing it or, or correcting it. Alistair Crowley came up came up in the trial, um, partially because Eccles had um, been in his jail, his prison, uh, his jail cell. Not his, he wasn't, wasn't in prison yet. He was in jail and he was doodling around, doodling around um, with. He was playing around with magical alphabets and transposing various names. From English into this magical alphabet, and one of the names he transposed was the name Aleister Crowley. Uh, prosecutors got a hold of this paper, and they rightly concluded that this was more than just a slight coincidence that maybe Mr. Eccles was preoccupied with Mr. Aleister Crowley, who, by the way, and it was pointed out in trial, had written a passage in Magic in Theory and Practice that suggested that young boys were the uh, best form of human sacrifice possible because of their powerful spiritual energies.
thanks to three HBO documentaries about the case, the convicted men became known as the West Memphis Three, and their cause found supporters throughout the country, including a number of high-profile celebrities such as Johnny Depp and Eddie Vedder. That's all true enough. Uh, raises the question of what do high-profile celebrities actually know about murder cases? In, in most cases, not much. Um, it describes how he would pr use prison as a kind of monastic retreat and an opportunity for self-directed study. He read about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the 19th century occult group that counted Crowley, W.B. Yeats, Brown Stoker, and Arthur Conan Doyle as members, and he began practicing the Golden Dawn's highly choreographed rituals, tracing pentagrams in the air while invoking the names of angels. The Wicca of his youth soon seemed goofy and uninformed. Well, he, you know, he's said that he encountered the ideas of, of uh, the Golden Dawn uh, at a very early age, and he's described elsewhere how he, even at age seven he was in, he, in uh, various tabloids. There would be these little ads in the back of back of the tabloid, uh, uh, you know, for mag correspondence schools for various forms of magic. And he was interested in that even at that age. So this it's a long-standing interest, but he claims he became, became essentially uh, a convert to the her, uh, the golden golden dawn way of thinking at around age twelve. And I'm not gonna, I'm not suggesting by this that the golden dawn ever advocated human ritual sacrifice. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they're Satanist. I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying the, the idea that he somehow is, you know, has not been involved in this all along, and it is the ruling preoccupation, the obsession of his life, uh, to say otherwise is just simply foolish and mistaken. At first, he questioned whether his rituals were just him playing games with his own mind. Is this really happening, or is this just like my imaginary friend? But what else did I have to do all day, he asked. Okay, the, the story doesn't mention uh, Eccles' history of mental illness, uh, including his imaginary friend. He had one called Rosie. It seemed to pop up a lot. He uh, had a a belief that his body had been occupied by the spirit of a dead woman. He believed that he uh, had been followed when he lived. He lived in Oregon briefly with his parents, summer of '92, and he believed a, a witch had followed him from Oregon back to Arkansas when he returned and was waging psychic warfare with him. Uh, there were a number of other hallucinations that he described. To, Psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and extensive ex extensive mental health files, five over five hundred pages. And then it says, and then one day in his prison cell, he saw an angel. It didn't have wings or a flowing robe. In fact, it looked like two large black triangles that somehow exuded a kind of intelligence. I understood why biblical angels. Always say right off, be not afraid, he said, and I never questioned it again. 
okay, so you got a guy who's prone to hallucinations anyway, who's practicing magical spells in his, his prison cell all day long, and lo and behold, he sees what he perceives as an angel that doesn't look anything like any angel uh, image of angels that most of us would have. It's very much in keeping with the otherworldly descriptions that Dr. John Dee and Edwin Kelly recorded in their their Nakian journals back in the, the Shakespearean Elizabethan age, uh, which is where Eccles derived a lot of the, these ideas from um, about angels and so forth. Uh, Dee professed to be a Christian, of, as mo did many practicing magicians in that era, but uh, he still came under a lot of criticism and outright persecution for his involvement in these magical rituals. Speaking of going back to Eccles, his studies grew more intense as his life on death row became increasingly restricted. Talk goes on to talk about how they were they were placed in uh, they'd been in death uh, death row. They'd been in a at one point they were in a more loosely supervised death row, and then they built a supermax prison in in uh, early two thousands, and so they put their worst prisoners uh, in the supermax units, including the, their death row prisoners. Uh, they've been in barred doors before so they could see and talk to each other. And then uh, Lori Davis, Eccles' prison bride, tells the writer about the previous situation. They were able to have relationships. They could pass books back and forth. The supermax sealed them up in tombs. No, they didn't seal them up in tombs. The supermax wasn't a tomb. It was a prison. The tombs were where Eccles' victims were. That's where they were lying. They were in tombs. He was in a prison cell because he put people in tombs. Ritual, rituals helped keep Mr. Eccles' mind and senses alive. By the last two years, it was all I did. I slept very little, he told me. I would just eat and work out and do magic. Uh, and explains uh, that he uses the, puts a K at the end, M-A-G-I-C-K, uh, to set it apart from magic in the usual sense. Uh... He developed his own rituals, spending hours summoning sense memories of the seasons until the gray world of the prison fade away. Every day, he and Mrs. De Miss Davis would dredge up as much energy, quote, would dredge up as much energy as we could and program it with the intent of getting me out, Mr. Eccles said. Eventually, I stopped thinking about the goal and it became about the joy of doing it. Miss Davis noted, Ms. Davis noted, noticed the effect it had on him. Even the way he carried himself started to change, he told me. He got his confidence back. He absolutely came alive. Um, so a, guy, a mentally ill guy in a solitary confinement is totally preoccupied with mad, magical spells to the exclusion of virtually everything else. Doesn't really sound like the road to mental health, but 
we'll move on, except I, I want to point out that she's talking about he and absolutely came alive. Supposedly, uh, as we go along, Jason Baldwin's rationale for going along with the Alfred plea, that which was a guilty plea, they pleaded guilty to get out of prison, was that Damien Eccles was dying in prison. Okay, which is it? Did he absolutely come alive, thanks to these the company of the angels and the magical rituals, or was he dying in prison? Uh, as we'll see further on, it doesn't appear that he was anything like dying in prison. He certainly didn't go to the emergency room when he left uh, uh, prison back in August of 2011. After new DNA evidence further supported the West Memphis Three's innocence, no, it didn't. Uh, there is no innocence to support, for one thing, and, and there, there, all the DNA findings found was that there, were, there weren't any DNA matches that could be positively linked to the West Memphis Three, partially because there was very little DNA to be matched other than the victims themselves. There's, not, there's no DNA that's been positively matched to anybody else, unequivocally, you know, to the exclusion of all others. Uh, there was some DNA that that uh, that was harvested. If I haven't already mentioned this, I'll mention it again. Um, that that West Smith, the Eccles and Baldwin, I think in particular, showed up in a couple of matches with some uh, you know penal swabs and some other things. But it, it was DNA evidence that was so weak that it really could not positively be linked to them to the exclusion of others is really what it came down to. After the new DNA evidence, supposed new DNA evidence, uh, the men were offered a surprise plea deal in 2011. But the thing about this new evidence is, is they had an evidentiary hearing coming up in December of 2011 but they had faced a deadline of presenting the, the new evidence to the uh, uh, prosecution in preparation for that hearing um, around the end of August of 2011. Well, just days before the, the deadline for the presentation of the so-called new evidence, the defense and the prosecution worked out a deal where, whereby uh, the West Memphis Three would plead uh, guilty under an Alford plea, which meant they pled guilty, but they could say they were innocent, but it was a guilty plea. And uh, they would be released for time served. So that was the surprise plea deal. But it wasn't, really shouldn't have been that much of a surprise since it was the defense's idea to, to do the plea deal. I will say that the, the prosecution, particularly Scott Ellington, who was the uh, prosecuting attorney for that district, he was perfectly happy to get the headache of the West, to make the headache of the West Memphis Three go away. He was being, it was occupying a great deal of his time. He was getting a lot of negative publicity from it. A lot of people were badgering him about it. He had he was going to have to worry about retrying a case that by the time it went to court, it was going to be about 20 years old. It's hard to retry a, a, a criminal case 20 years later, much of which is based on 
uh, evidence from people who maybe not weren't necessarily all that credible to begin with uh, on both sides. Uh, and you, you just hope everybody shows up. I, you know, it's very, it's very unlikely that Michael Carson, there's no way Michael Carson, for instance, could have showed up and testified against Jason Baldwin uh, concerning a confession and a jail and a juvenile detention with the same kind of effect that he had in 1994. Uh, he made some compromising statements at various times. And on top of that, he, it just simply had been a long time and uh, they were going to poke holes in his testimony. There, uh, they had a bunch of highly paid legal experts lined up to basically pick, pick, pick away at every aspect of the case. And it was going to be a nightmare to try. It was going to be difficult to win, probably. Maybe they could have won. Maybe they could. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they had. They would have pulled up some new evidence. Who knows what if if the West Memphis Three defense had new evidence that was that good? I don't know. It's it's unclear why they wouldn't have gone for it, particularly if it was really good DNA evidence that conclusively pointed to somebody else while excluding their guys. Why wouldn't? Why would you not bring that to court? You, stood, stand, you would stand at least a pretty darn good chance of getting a new trial and being exonerated and uh, being able to file uh, for a wrong, wrongful conviction and maybe even getting uh, millions of dollars as a result. They didn't do that. The surprise plea deal. Okay, Mr. Eccles and Miss Davis saw this as evidence that their rituals had worked. After 18 years and 78 days on death row, Mr. Eccles was released from prison and immediately headed to a giant party thrown by Mr. Vetter, one of his most steadfast celebrity supporters. There were hors d'oeuvres, an open bar, and a giddy sense of victory. Doesn't sound like a dying man. He he didn't hit. He went headed to the Madison Hotel in uh, Memphis. For a wing ding that night, he didn't go to the emergency room. Uh, he wasn't an IV drip. He wasn't dying. Uh, I would like to point out that he and his co-defendants have done virtually nothing since that day to try to. If there are real killers floating around there, they've done virtually nothing as far as. Uh, trying to determine who those real killers were and or what their evidence against the real killers would be. They've done very little in their own case, all three of them. Being released, and here we get into the sob story. The very typical Eccles as a professional victim sob story. Poor, poor me. Being really, this is the story. Being released from prison turned out to be nearly as traumatic as being sent there in the first place. I was shattered, broke, devastated, he said. He's quite the drama queen. He said he thought he would be wrecked forever. He had a hard time reading maps and recognizing faces, blah, 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 blah. Uh, talked about how he had aged rapidly. Uh, Short-term memory was shot, his eyesight had degenerated, and he suffered from arthritis. Uh, Short-term memory was shot. Who knows? You know, I mean, there's a good chance he's 
he seems to be he's been diagnosed with a lot of mental illnesses. It's a good chance it could affect his his memory and then his own dabbling and um, take uh, with occult rituals for hours and hours and hours every day may may play may play with uh, the synapses in strange sorts of ways. Um, and of course, we're taking his word for all this. His eyesight had degenerated. Well, that's not exactly unusual for somebody approaching middle age. There are lots of people with bad eyesight. He blames it on being in prison. It looks to, looks to me like he just needed glasses, which is not exactly unusual. And he suffered from arthritis again, which is nothing unusual. He was terrified to be alone, so Miss Davis rearranged her schedule so they were basically never apart. And incidentally, Miss Davis wouldn't have to worry about getting a job. She could just live off the proceeds of Damien as a professional victim. While in prison, he'd grown confident in his ability to shape reality. Now he couldn't do magic for more than a few seconds. Uh, blah, 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 blah. This is one of the more outrageous statements here. The terms of the plea deal meant that the West Memphis Three weren't eligible for wrongful, wrongful conviction compensation. The reason they weren't eligible for wrongful conviction compensation was there was no wrongful, wrongful conviction. They pleaded guilty. Why would they get a payoff for pleading guilty? This is just flat-ass dumb, but, you know, it, and I, I'm not saying that Rachel Monroe is unintelligent, because I'm sure she's not, but otherwise intelligent journalists seem to get stupid when it comes to the West Memphis Three. To earn money, he and Miss Davis went on Miss Davis went on tour promoting books and documentaries about the case, despite Mr. Eccles' precarious physical and psychological state. Then it describes he, he had a, a a memoir, Life After Death, which was a New York Times bestseller. He and Miss Davis co-authored a book, Gears for Eternity, a love story on death row, that which is their prison love letters, and just. Ugh. And they co-produced uh, a, a document, a fourth documentary on the case uh, called West of Memphis. Uh, it was directed by Amy Berg, who was a protege of Peter Jackson. Speaking of Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson uh, worked out a deal. He used his influence and in, considerable influence in New Zealand to uh, get the, the government officials there to set aside their restrictions on felons entering the country so Eccles could come visit there for a while. He went to, he went to Europe. He did uh, a lot of talks and lucrative talks at uh, various small liberal arts colleges and so forth, uh, always playing up the professional victim. And this was before he got in, he'd gotten conspicuously back into uh, his magical obsessions. Um, he also was heavily involved in hanging out with people like Marilyn Manson and, uh, and of course, Johnny Depp, uh, a lot of hanging out in tattoo parlors where he got extensively inked. He, he was involved in creating his own, uh, he was basically, he'd put, he'd put an X on your skin and it with a tattooing needle for $100 and he made some money doing that. He had a, they moved to Salem, Massachusetts briefly, uh, where he had a hermetic Reiki studio and uh, was 
basically setting himself up as some sort of occult shop and that went bust for whatever reason and so they left and moved to Harlem where they live now uh anyway it says about their tours the tours were grueling mr eccles wanted to focus on the future but his public persona resolved revolved around the worst period of his life everyone thinks that time is so interesting he said to me it's just boring it's, it's convenient that it's boring because it gives him an excuse not to have to talk about it he simply won't address questions about the case unless they're extremely self-serving um, he uh says he's never seen the Paradise Lost, any of the Paradise Lost movies, apparently, and really does, claims to not really know that much about the case. Though he can trot out the facts whenever it's convenient for him or whenever he, he it's when it serves his purposes, he seems to have them at his command. Otherwise, he doesn't have a lot to say about it. Over the next several years, Mr. Eccles slowly developed a community based around magic. He also became confident enough to explore the city on his own. Then he goes on and on about the magical world of uh, New York City. And here we get into the sad, soulful part again, uh, where it was difficult to sustain an extended ritual practice in the small Harlem apartment he and Miss Davis Ms. Davis shared with their three attention-hungry cats, Baby, Spider Jenkins, and Goswin, but he managed. Take note that the three attention-hungry cats got at least as much ink on this piece as the three boys that he slaughtered in the woods. And then he talks about him recently coming to Brooklyn. Uh... Uh, he's, he's been doing a lot of promotion, promotional work uh, uh, revolving around this book. And so, you know, they, they, she, she apparently went to this little workshop he did in Brooklyn. Uh, whether She says, whether fans loved him as a death row martyr, will, fans who loved, whether fans who loved him as a death row martyr will take to him as a spiritual leader is not yet clear. Um, I'd suggest the his 15 minutes of fame are just about up, though I, right now he it's an interesting novelty. Uh, it makes good clickbait uh, on the on these web web pages and these obscure sometimes obscure journals and sometimes uh, and these podcasts. Uh, and then you know you got the Guardian and the New York Times, which are big newspapers big big by today's standards anyway and uh you know the novelty there's here's a convicted child killer who's written this manual on um, magical practices and oh by the way part of the reason he was rationale he was convicted was that uh, there was a prosecution theory that it may have been a ritual occult rituals involved in the killings May have been a motivation. I'm skipping over some of this. 
Mr. Eccles was gracious and joking with his fans, but the social interaction seemed to drain him. Afterward, at dinner with friends, he seemed agitated and unfocused. The one little bit of negativity in the whole thing, this whole story, uh, explaining maybe that all is not what it seems, uh, or what they're trying to make it seem. He tried to explain how his emergent in magic was making it increasingly difficult to engage with the mundane realities of day-to-day -day life, including dinner party chit-chat. Uh, he claims his memory issues meant that for an hour from now, he might not remember a word of this conversation. By tomorrow, he probably wouldn't remember that he ha it had happened at all. This is all very convenient for him. He can just simply say, oh, I forgot things, and, and put it down to his faulty memory. Uh, it talks about his book, uh, National Tour. Uh, he's going to a half a dozen cities. And he's getting quite a bit of publicity from it. A few days later, uh, they, she, she visits, she goes with him to the Cloisters, one of his favorite magical sites. He seemed to have regained his equilibrium. In other words, she saw that at some point in that dinner, she saw that, you know, this guy's really doesn't have it together very well at all, which is what everybody who's around him for a length of time and is honest about it apparently sees. He's pretty good. He's pretty good about playing the game up to a point, and then he loses it. We wandered among the tapestries and discussed Instagram witches. It's for the better, he said. If you talk about witches now and people think about Instagram and not Satanism, that lowers the danger level. At least it is not going to happen to anyone else. Unless they kill three children. He says, the two things that bring me joy are magic and things that make me laugh, he said. I want to just let everything else go. That's e easier said than done, she said, the writer says. Since the things that he wants to do, he wants to let go of, are also what brought him here. This is very perceptive. The only reason anybody's interested in this guy is because of the time, because of his backstory, his, th his time in prison. If he was just a 43-year-old guy with a bunch of tattoos living in Harlem who'd written a magic book, nobody would care. Literally nobody would care. We stood in front of a glass case with a gaudy gold vessel inside. Mr. Eccles identified it as a monstrance a vessel for displaying the Eucharist during Catholic Mass. He noted that the word had the same Latin root as monster, monstrum, to shine forth, he defined helpfully. The terrible and wonderful, all bound up together. If you've seen a monster, even if it's horrible, that's evidence of divinity, he said. End of story. So she's seen the monster, and I guess she thinks he's divine. You know, one of the I wrote several books about the West Memphis Three case. One of them is called the second volume, and uh, is the where the monsters go, and that's where Eccles said he wanted to go. First book's Blood on Black, and then I did a revised, condensed compilation 
of those two volumes called The Case Against the West, Memphis Three Killers. They're available on Amazon. End of, the, end of my little ad. Um, Rachel Monroe wrote, um, quite, has written, as I mentioned, several other stories uh, involving murder fandom and uh, including the uh, uh, the Columbine the, the fans, the fans of the Columbine killers. And she wrote in that story, spend any time with an online fangirl community where the crust object is a murderer or a fictional wolf prince or just a plain old pop star, and you'll soon hear about the feels. According to Urban Dictionary, the feels are, quote, the feelings you get when you watch or look at some sort of picture or video, most times of a celebrity, where you cannot place what your feelings, your feeling, usually feelings of the sexual variety, unquote. The feelings are sexual, but not merely or exclusively so. They are distinct from pre-internet emotions in that they are more like feelings for feeling's sake. The internet, with its wealth of intangible content, is the feels native land. An internet crush is the feels personified. You can't do anything about the feels except feel them. Maybe go look at some more pictures online. They are an appetite that does not expect to be sated, an intensity without any perceivable end. You know, she's a she's a pretty good writer, as you can see, and, and sometimes it's quite perceptive. Though I don't think she's that perceptive was that self-perceptive when it came to the Eccles piece because she certainly reads as if she's she certainly does no pushback whatsoever uh, on, on Eccles now Eccles posted the, the New York Times story on uh, his web his, uh, Facebook page he received over 30 supportive often gushy comments uh, and then there was only one male commenter in the whole the whole group. He his following is heavily, heavily female. Draw your own conclusions from that. Uh, now I will say, since Eccles blocks negative comments, his page's followers are going to range from supportive to adoring, and you know, there's nobody on the other side of the slate. Uh, along those lines, are a couple. Uh, some weeks before uh, he, th that story, he posted a, a portrait, a photo portrait of him standing on a sidewalk. These were the comments from some of the top fans. Love the whole ensemble you're wearing, Damien Eccles. Very New York NYC, very Damien. You so punk rock. Love you forever, Damien. I love your look. You look great, Damien, three exclamation marks, and New York becomes you. Now, and, and on the Columbine story, the wrap-up of that story was also interesting. It's perhaps what's so disturbing about the Columbiners is not who they're crushing on, but how it's actually not so difficult to imagine what it might be like to be one. Why not let yourself inhabit their world for a moment? What might you need to unleash? What makes you want to scream and scream until someone slaps you? That's the end of the story there. Uh, that's a question she might want to ask herself again. I sent a, a letter, I sent an email to the New York Times concerning this story. I was going to 
read it all, but I've I've covered much of the material already. Um, point out again that the story itself really minim totally minimized the actual crime, barely mentions it. Uh, I, I will let me. The story incorrectly describes the plea deal as a surprise originating from the state. There is no evidence, and has been no evidence of the West Memphis Three's innocence. There has been no exonerating evidence. There is no evidence they were wrongly convicted, as suggested in a tweet from your reporter. Speaking of Rachel Monroe, tweeted about their wrongful conviction. The defense was facing a deadline on presenting new material for a scheduled evidentiary hearing and instead suggested the Alfred plea. There was nothing notable or nonconforming about listening to Metallica in West Memphis in 1993. Two of the killers were utterly generic teenagers. There is zero evidence that Miss Kelly ever doodled pentagrams or listened to Metallica. Your story gives an impression of the contrary. I'll, I'll spare you. you know, some of that I already covered. I should have skipped over. Um, nowhere in this story is the necessary context that Eccles was locked up in mental institutions three times in 1992 for violent acting out in his obsession with the occult, drinking blood to obtain godlike powers, describing himself as a vampire or the son of Satan, conversing with imaginary friends or dead people, or dead people he thought occupied his body. The mental mental Instability, briefly remarked upon in the story, dates back to childhood, according to family members in his own statements. Readers being encouraged to emulate a convicted killer by engaging in occult rituals should be made aware that this was a man who wanted to be remembered as the West Memphis boogeyman and who wanted to go where the monsters go, unquote. And then I get into it. The, your reporter apparently knows next to nothing about this case and did not bother to learn anything for this puff piece. She sopped up the putrid propaganda of Joe Berlinger and the late Bruce Sinofsky that the killers were innocent, three innocent teens who were fingered as fall guys because they wore black t-shirts and listened to heavy metal, thereby promoting a mob of frightened puritanical villagers caught up in satanic panic to mindlessly fall upon these teens as scapegoats with the full cooperation of inept, an inept and corrupt police force, prosecutor's office, and judge. That entire scenario is a lie that irresponsible entertainers masquerading as brave and principled journalists have foisted upon the public. And with that, I'm signing off on this. Um, I intend to produce a pot podcast along these lines on a, some sort of regular basis that's still yet to be determined. This is not my natural medium. I'm a print guy. Uh, I'm still learning the ropes on the technology of this. And uh, thank you for your time.